Good evening, everybody. Tonight, if you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, that's where we'll be. We'll try to get through the whole chapter. It's kind of a long chapter, but I think we can get through it if we focus a little bit here. We've been uh, trying to get together a trip down to Branson for that uh, live on stage Jesus. I didn't know if anybody had seen that on Facebook or not. Um, we put a post out there, but I'll make a mention of it from here if you're interested in that. We're just trying to see if there's enough interest to actually go. We may just wait till uh, the spring. They did all this work. (laughs) Uh, But it might give you more time to gear up for it or whatever. Um, They're going to do Esther in the spring. Um, So that might be a better time to go if we can't get enough interest. But if you're interested in going down, um, let us know. Look on Facebook for it and uh, hit the post, say interested. And if we get enough people, we'll go. Um, But otherwise, we might wait till spring. So keep that in mind. Paul is desperately trying to help these Corinthians out, this church. Um, I don't think we realize how messed up they are. (laughs) Um, But he moves on in chapter 15 to deal with the, I guess, new teaching in their church that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And as much as I've read the scriptures and I go over these things, it always... Is fascinating. This is what we would say out loud here is a first century church. Most people don't care what that means, but I mean, we're within earshot of Jesus being crucified and rising from the dead. And already at this time, they've already got this false doctor that's come in to say, well, Jesus didn't really, really rise from the dead. And doctrine gets messed up really quick when we haven't taken God's word as God's word. Um, When we take the Bible or the scriptures, um, not at face value or not with the authority of the author, God himself behind it, um, everything is open then. And there are some basic fundamental things and, and, that have to be understood. And this is just logic, whether you're studying the scriptures or you're studying uh, biology or whether you're studying math or whatever you're studying, there are some basics to studying that hold true regardless of the subject matter. Um, And you have to follow those things to their logical conclusion. You have to uh, take facts for what they are. And that's what Paul's going to try to do here in this chapter 15 is take the Corinthians back through the facts of the matter. Um, the things that were witnessed, the things that were believed upon at the beginning, but now aren't. And it's, it's hard to imagine getting to this place where in your faith in Jesus Christ, based off of how you were born again, if you were born again, you can get to a place where Jesus doesn't really have to rise from the dead in order for you to continue in your faith in salvation through Jesus. We have the same problem today. I can almost understand 2,000 years after the cross how things get lost, confused, or twisted, right? Um, But in the Corinthian church, Paul was probably consenting to Stephen's death. We know that he was, but also that means he was probably in the presence of Jesus' teaching at some time. And Paul is, he's the binder here between Jesus and the Corinthian church. That's not very far, of time, you know, to get to this place where the resurrection is in question. So, 
Paul's going to do his best to straighten these things out. This is what we consider the first Corinthian letter and the second Corinthian letter also as a corrective epistle. It's an epistle. Scriptures break down into several criteria. Some are the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, you have the book of Acts, which is the beginning of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. That's the beginning of the church. And then you have the corrective epistles that go on that Paul writes most of. Um, there are some by John and some by Peter and James. And then finally, the book of Revelation, which is a prophetic uh, book that goes along with the prophets in the Old Testament as well. So we break down that way. Um, this is a corrective epistle. It had to be written because the church is so far off that he had to write a letter to them to say, I don't know who taught you this or where this came from, but you need to get back to the basics or else your faith and your salvation is in question. Most people don't go that far to the to the logical conclusion. If, if I just stop believing that because it's uncomfortable or because it's not socially acceptable anymore, if I can just remove that, I can still have my faith. And they don't realize the connection. And so we're going to go over that tonight. And Paul's going to try to make that connection for us. Chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, in addition to what I've already written to you about, I declare to you the gospel, the good news, which I preach to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if, and this is a big if, you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, unless it was a fake, unless you really never did come to know the Lord, never really did trust in Jesus Christ. But if you did, and all that's true, you need to still believe what I first preached to you. You cannot move from these doctrines, these truths. He tells us what the good news is. He's going to actually describe that in 3 through uh, 8. That is the gospel, but we won't get there yet. He says, I preach the good news to you. That, that word gospel in their day and age, and, and we don't use it very much now, is just something you would describe, uh, um, you know, David, I made you a cake. Oh, that's the gospel. That's good news. I made you a cake. You could apply it to almost anything um, at the time. Paul says now, when he says, I preach to you the gospel, like the gospel of all gospels, the good news of all good news, cake aside, I'm going to tell you how you no longer have to worry about going to hell or the penalty of your sins resting upon you anymore. Uh, that payment has been paid. So I've got some good news for you about the guilt and the shame you carry with you over your sins. Good news. It's the ultimate. And I declared it to you. That's all we do. We don't invent the gospel. We don't invent doctrine. We don't create these things. We're, we're, we're repeaters of it. That's all we can be. When we begin to get into the editing position of the scriptures, we're in a very dangerous place and we're in error. We don't get to edit the gospel. We don't get to edit the truth of God's word, which we see happening all the time now. It's dangerous. I declared the good news to you. I didn't invent it. Paul believed on the same gospel that he declared to them. And that's how it goes. I believe in Jesus Christ. Paul even says at one point, this is my gospel. Not that I created it, but that I believed on it. It's mine. JD has a gospel too. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I own it in the sense that I've personalized it. I brought it into my life. Not edit, not changed, but believed on. Hopefully you can say the same thing. And after you receive it into your heart, then you can declare it to others. 
Now, many people try to declare the gospel without believing in the gospel, and Paul even calls them out at one point in one of his scriptures. He just says, well, if, if, they're, if they're preaching Jesus Christ from envy or from whatever it is that they're trying to do, whatever, at least Jesus is preached. Well, I, I hope that's not the case <laughs> in our lives or in anybody's lives. I hope that they would believe on it first and then share it like it is good news to them. It's good news for others. I declared it to you. I preached it to you. Preaching has emotion attached to it. Not because of emotion, but there was such power and desire in Paul's heart for them to believe on him. He almost begged them to believe in this good news. Please hear this good news. And you've probably been there in your own walk as you've shared the gospel with many people in your lives. And there are some that you just wish and you beg that they'd understand. Maybe they don't. Maybe they won't but you've preached to them. You've become a preacher, a beggar, someone who emphatically believes it and hopes with all their heart that the listener will receive. And that's the point here in the next section, which you also received. You received this gospel, the gospel that I'm about to declare to you in verses three through eight. Now they've edited this gospel, and that's what Paul is bringing us to as the readers and the Corinthian church as the readers. You received what I preached to you. What you're preaching now is not what I preached to you. We've got a disconnect. And in which you stand. I mean, you actually still believe on it. (laughs) You'll find that to be true when people edit the scriptures, when they edit sin, when they edit what the Bible says about certain things. They still believe in everything they first believed when they were in third grade or first grade or seventh grade or whenever they receive Jesus, oh yeah, I absolutely believe that Jesus is the son of God, but I don't think you have to. And this edit that's taken place in their lives and in their church's lives and in their preacher's lives, I wouldn't even call them preachers anymore then, um, they've made a disconnect. No, your faith is attached to the fact that you truly believe what you first believed. What you're saying now isn't what you believed in. How can you still believe it? I mean, that goes without saying, but it's unbelievable how people can go on living, calling themselves Christians, but not believing the gospel anymore. The The pure, complete gospel. I'm a Christian. You ask anybody in Maryville, anybody, I guarantee you walk down Hy-Vee or Walmart, say, are you a Christian? No, absolutely. You ever go to church? No, I don't need to go to church. I fish. I fish, that's where I find Jesus. Hey, do you ever read your Bible? Mm-mm, mm-mm. Do you know what a gospel is? I think, Bob, you know, no. But everybody's a Christian, just ask them. But they don't know the gospel. They don't believe the gospel. They don't live the gospel. They don't bear fruits of repentance in their life. And you're trying to figure out what it is. The definition is different. Saying you're a Christian doesn't mean anything anymore. There's no value to it. The, cha- the, the, the definition has changed. Some people believe Christianity means this. Some people believe Christianity means that. We don't have to guess. We're not supposed to guess. We're not supposed to invent what that word means. That's a big thing now, isn't it? Changing the definitions of things we've always known what they meant, but now no longer mean what they are. How can that be? What's changed in the last 10 years? Because truth is no longer truth. That's your truth, not my truth. That's your Christianity, not my Christianity. No. For example, 
I know, I'm going to try to think of somebody that I don't normally use in this example, but um, I think of someone good. Oh, uh, I don't know, I'll use them. Trying to find someone a little more neutral. I know uh, Linda Williams, that's my aunt. Linda Williams, I know her. And uh, I know what she looks like, I know her hair color. Some of you may know some things about her based off of her career. Some of you may know other things about her. We all have bits and pieces of these things, but the person that knows her the most would be her husband. See? So when you have the husband describing his wife to you, Linda Williams, and someone comes up and says, no, 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 that's not the Williams I know. My Linda is this, that, or the other thing. She's a brunette. And she's, uh, well... She's very thin, you know, and she's whatever. I said, well, when was the last time you saw her, you know? Well, it's about 15 years ago at our last class reunion or whatever it may be, you know. Well, I live with her, and she's put on some weight, and she's no longer a brunette. She's now blonde, and so on. And so what we have is a mixed opinion, and what I'm getting at is, as people say, no, no, this is who, and this is what Christianity is. No, no, this is what Christianity is. no. Believing on Jesus Christ is something very tangible, very factual, and isn't open to discussion. It isn't open to interpretation. See, Linda Williams is a real person. She's to be discovered. She's to be known. She's to be uh, fellowshipped with. She's to have a personality that you get to know, and 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 her language and her and her uh, and the bravado of her of her of her tenor when she speaks, and 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 so on. All that's there. You can say all you want about her, but it may not be true. It's your opinion, and it based off of old news or whatever. Jesus is a person who must be encountered and encountered frequently. And you get to know, and he's written this book about himself for us to know. The volume of the book is written of me. It isn't open to interpretation. It isn't, I think Jesus is this. I think Jesus is that. No, he tells us who he is and what he is and what he's done and what he's going to do. It's not open to interpretation. Neither is Christianity. But boy, you'd think it was. Well, the Corinthian church is being brought to that place by Paul. Look, you can't edit the gospel that you first received from me, that I declared to you, that you believed on, in which you stand and are saved by. You need to hold fast to that. The idea of holding fast means that it's going to be or try, someone's going to try to rip that out of your hands. You have to hold fast to that. The world will desperately try to edit Christianity into what it wants it to be. You have to understand who your sources are. Where does your information come from? Well, I read this book and I read this man's opinion and this woman's opinion and on and on and on it goes, or this pastor, or that pastor, whatever it may be, taught me this, that, or the other thing. It's contrary to God's word. It's false. It's false teaching. It's someone trying to rip out of your hands what you hold fast to. You need to believe on that and hold on to that. Paul's trying to graciously, but also forcefully letting them know without you need to believe what I taught you. We have to have that resolute heart as believers. It isn't open to discussion. So here's the, here's the gospel, verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures, according to Isaiah 53 and so on, the Messiah was going to have to die. That's a part of the gospel. That's not open to discussion. We don't get to say, well, Jesus was a holy man, that Jesus was a prophet, that Jesus was a righteous man. Um, We have to believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh and that he died on the cross, that he was crucified. Christ died for our sins. Now, with that statement, we have to know what sins are. And the Bible describes what sins are. We don't get to edit that. We can't say that Jesus died. Like, if you're in 76 AD, Jesus has died, risen, gone to heaven, ascended into heaven, and you're a part of this church. You don't get to say, well, I know that was, uh, he died for this sin specifically. And then 2,000 years later, say that, no, he didn't die for this sin. We're editing sin. And it's interesting, we edit the sin that we're involved with so that it's not sin anymore, but he did die for these other sins, but we're not involved in those, so it's okay that he died for those because I don't have any guilt and shame associated with those, so therefore he died for those people, except for the people that are in those sins that you just said, and that's where you get your truth, my truth, and that's where you get confused, and that's perfect for Satan. He absolutely loves it. Look, they can't even get along. They can't even agree upon what sin is anymore, which nullifies the cross, which nullifies Jesus. That's the intent. That's the plan. That's the strategy. Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's the first thing you received, and it's according to Scripture. And that he was buried. You must believe that Jesus not only died on the cross for sins, but was buried also. That's not negotiable. It's a part of the gospel. If you don't believe in his death, if you don't believe in his burial, you, then you don't believe in the gospel. You're not saved. It's very important. These are non-negotiable issues. Why was it important that he was buried? Because it proves that he was truly dead. They looked at him. They found him to be dead. They put him in a cave like they do with every other dead body. They treated him like he was a dead person. He was dead, dead, dead to dead, dead. Super dead. Jesus not alive, not comatose, not in a, a, a funny state that later on he was going to wake up and say, what's this rock in front of my hole for, you know, and roll it away and, and realize uh, it was all a big mistake after all. No, he was dead and he was buried. And then he rose again the third day. That is not negotiable. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is non-negotiable. You must believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the point of chapter 15. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, or at least some of this Corinthian church doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's just too hard for them to grasp. It's too weird. My friends think I'm weird when I say that my Savior died on the cross. That was bad enough. But when I said he was really dead and buried and rose from the dead, they laughed me out of the room. So I've changed my view on the gospel of Jesus Christ to include, well, he didn't really have to rise from the dead. That's just more theory than anything. Then you don't believe the gospel and you're not saved. I can say that with all authority of Scripture. You must believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why Easter is so important. We love Christmas because of the presents and the hoopla and the decorations and all that. I'm all about it. I love it. But Easter is the proof that the death of Christ was accepted. It's the most important part of the gospel. 
It is not negotiable. I'm being forceful and serious about this because in our town alone, there are two or three churches that do not believe the resurrection of Jesus. Churches that don't believe the resurrection is necessary for salvation. They don't believe that's part of the gospel, that it's negotiable. I don't know how they survive. I don't know how people continue to darken their doors and show up, except for ignorance. It's unheard of. The resurrection of Jesus is essential. Death holds sinners. Death could not hold him, which means he wasn't a sinner, which means he was perfect. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the sacrifices we've always done in the temple, slaughtering the perfect, faultless, blemish-free lamb. It was inspected by every priest out there, and once they found out that it was a perfect lamb, male, they would sacrifice it for the sin of the person that brought it, and it was accepted by God. All pictures and foreshadowing of what the Christ would do. John, his cousin, says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is the one we've been waiting for, the perfect, spotless lamb. And because he was crucified, although the weight of all of our sins was placed upon him, he was not a sinner ever. Death could not hold him, and so he rose from the dead by himself. That proves that the sacrifice was accepted. He was the perfect sacrifice. If death had held him, then he was not the perfect sacrifice. He was a sinner that could be held by death, and we we're all still lost in our sins, which is what Paul's going to get at here. If you don't believe the resurrection is necessary and that death held your Savior, that means he was not perfect. Death could hold your Savior. He's not faultless and spotless. You are therefore still in your sins. You have no hope. You understand what it means to believe the gospel for salvation. You've got to believe this and know this and preach this and share this and declare this. You can't give the gospel missing any of these pieces. It's essential, according to the scriptures, he says. And that he was seen by Cephas, Peter. Then by the 12, meaning the other 11 disciples. Why the 12? Well, that's what they were called. I mean, Judas is dead. He's hung himself, but they're still called the 12, okay? The 12 saw him. And after he was seen by that, over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to this present. They're still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Now, we'll see that term a lot, and this is kind of a side issue. But as I study, and I'm into this a little bit more, and I'm kind of focusing on this chapter, I always, and I'm pretty quick to say, well, what they mean by that is dead. I kind of have to be careful about that. Because Paul chooses the word fallen asleep, and at other points uses the word dead. Now, I don't see a difference because what he means by falling asleep is what we would call grandma's not alive, she's dead, she's in the coffin. She could have been a believer, but we still call her, she died. We still say that. Paul says no, because death only holds sinners, unsaved sinners. This is a saved person, so they're not dead. They're translated. They've been received up into heaven. Death is holding the sinners but those who are saved, well, they're not dead. They're just they're falling asleep. And that's where we get that strange doctrine, soul sleep. That's just the best term they could say was, no, the body's at rest. 
until he comes again and that body gets transformed, which we're going to see here at the end of this chapter, transformed into the new body that we get when we get to heaven. So for now, that's the state that they're in. So we kind of have to be careful that we don't just say dead. It's like, well, they were a believer, so I can see why Paul chooses these words carefully as he's trying to describe doctrine. I know this is heavy for a Wednesday night. I know. But this is the chapter we're in, and if we don't have this stuff down and understand that, we're in no different place in the Corinthian church, lost in our own opinions. No grounding, nothing solid to hold on to. Paul's trying to give them that stability that they need so desperately in their doctrine. 500 people witnessed him alive. It's not an argument. It's a fact. It's not an open to discussion. It's a fact. They're still alive. They could correct this letter. Someone could read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and say, I was alive then. I'm still alive now. He never rose from the dead. We saw him carry him off. They could refute it and would write something about it and attach it to this letter. And you could find that then. There is no refuting this. No one refutes the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ historically. So that's why Paul says here, no, he was seen by 500 and they're still alive. You can ask them yourself. It's a fact that can't be removed from the gospel. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. I really believe Paul felt that way. Remember when they were in the upper room, maybe you don't, but Judas has killed himself. They're in the upper room because that's where Jesus told them to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. So they go to Jerusalem. They get this upper room. They're all praying, 120 of them up there. And they're praying and they're praying and it's a long time. And they get the idea, we need to cast lots to see who that 12th replacement apostle is. And they pick this guy, Matthias, I think is his name. That's the guy. They had a couple candidates and they picked Matthias because he'd always been with them. He met the criteria, whatever. You really don't hear anything. There's no book on Matthias. You know, there's no, the poor guy, you know, but he's probably pretty excited. I'm one of the 12. I'm the 12th the replacement. But then you read something like this in verse 8 where Paul says, I was born out of due time. You see Jesus picking him on the road to Damascus, blinding him and saying, I want you to preach my gospel from here on out. It's like Jesus had his own moment where he says, you're the 12th. That's the idea behind this. And I think Paul feels that way. I should have been one of the 12. He is probably. He's probably the true replacement. Either way, Paul feels like he was born out of time. He says, I saw him. Very few people can say that. You know, he says, I saw him. And Paul was one of the greatest critics and one of the greatest persecutors of the church. He says, and I'm telling you, I saw him and I believed on him. He's real. It's fact. And so verse 9, he says, for I am the least of the apostles. So I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. But he is an apostle. He is an apostle. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Paul's saying, I worked harder than all those other 11 guys. And he did. I mean, he really did. We can see the proof of that. He was truly born again, truly touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, truly believed it with all of his heart. 
and gave his entire life to it. Now, here we get into the details. Now, about this resurrection, which is what we're getting to. This doctrine of Jesus not really rising from the dead. This probably came from some Sadducees. We've discussed this before, Pharisees and Sadducees, the two Jewish groups at the time of the religious leaders. There were probably some others, but for the most part, it was Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees were the back to the Bible guys of the Old Testament, you know, um, pretty conservative, believed a lot of good stuff, you know, pretty, we'd be a part of them. We'd love the Pharisees, kind of. They're known for, you know, being stuck up and arrogant and didn't want to touch the yucky Gentiles. And so that's why we, you know, you're a Pharisee. We call each other Pharisees if we think we're being too legalistic or whatever. But for the most part, they were true believers, okay, in God. The Sadducees were the weird group. They're the liberals uh, of the group. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. Um, strange, you know. So you go to synagogue, and which is what they did. That was their church. And you would go and you'd hang out and you'd worship God and all that. that but but it only mattered for the time you were alive because once you died, well, that was it. You kind of vaporized. You know? and so they were very liberal in their theology. And very, it's very strange stuff. Well, that's crept in. Maybe some of them got saved, decided to come to the Corinthian church. But this is also a pagan idea also, not just with the Sadducees, a part of the Jewish faith, that come to know Jesus Christ and come into this group and decide, well, you know, we really don't believe in that angel thing and we don't believe in spirits and we don't believe in souls and all this thing. We don't believe there's anything after this life. Okay, it's kind of a waste. So Paul's trying to point that out to them. You guys have believed on this weird doctrine, this strange thing. Um, It says now, you say now, and I preach that God raised him from the dead. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? And so he takes him through the, now think this to your logical, bring it to its logical conclusion, Corinthians. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. So Jesus never got up from the dead. He's still in the grave someplace. We just can't find him then, is what you're saying. Well, yeah, I guess. Okay, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty because what are you believing in? And why are you believing it? What's the point? If there is no resurrection from the dead, if there's no everlasting life, if there's no afterlife, if there's nothing happens after you go into the ground, you become nothing, what do you believe on again and why? What difference does it make? You know, Our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Well, maybe, but it gives us something to do. You know, I don't know. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he was raised from the dead. When we did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. So now you're calling us liars. Well, we didn't mean to call you a liar. Well, that's what you've done. You don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. That means you don't believe the gospel that was first preached to you. You have no hope. He's bringing them to this. It's not optional, Corinthians. In fact, finally, he finishes, and if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, exclamation point. So you're still looking for salvation. Never thought of it that way. It's that important. Your salvation is in jeopardy if you don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. If you don't believe that Jesus rose, if you don't believe that you're going to rise from the dead, what is the point? I mean, you can see what he's done here. And as he goes through this, 
step by step, there's eight steps there, process of bringing to them to the understanding that you do know that when you take that out, when you so cavalierly blacken that out of your scriptures and don't believe what was preached to you, that you've affected everything in your life. When we begin to edit sins out, we don't follow it to its logical conclusion most of the time. If this isn't a sin, then everybody that said it was a sin is now called a liar. That includes God because he said it was a sin in scriptures. So now you've made God a liar. I never say that about God. You just did. You just did. Oh, well, that means that you don't believe this, that, the other thing. And what is it that he died for then? Well, he died for the sins that I think are sins. Oh, I mean, you've never said that out loud, but now that you say it out loud, it does sound a little ridiculous that you are the author now. This is what's sin and this isn't sin. We tried to discuss this earlier, and I don't know that we, I didn't know, I don't know if I did a very good job of it, but that some of the basics of understanding who God is, is that he's perfect and that he's infinite. Um, if you don't believe that God is perfect or infinite, um, then it's hard to buy any of this. You have to have that solid, firm foundation. If there's any fault in him, if there's any flaws in him, if there's any sin within this creator that we call God, then eventually his infinite being ends. He's not infinite then. It's going to come to a fault at one point, and he's going to perish, and everything that he's created perishes with it, and it ends completely. It's not logical that God has fault or sin or problems or defects. So in order for God to be infinite, to be outside of creation, to be outside of time and space and to write things like this and to send his son who was already existing and to believe on all this, you have to believe that about him. When you say that's not sin, calling him a liar, making mistakes, and you've destroyed your own faith. Just don't call yourself a Christian anymore. The definition is very important. It's very serious, and that it is why we have such a problem, I believe, with holiness in the church, with a true understanding of the gravity of the situation we find ourselves in. It's hard to explain to someone about their need for a Savior when you've virtually said there's no need for a Savior. Your sin is no longer sin, therefore you no longer need a Savior for that. And that goes on and on. Why do you go to church? Who do you worship and why? We have to follow it to its logical conclusion. And there is no God. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Which is what Paul's going to say here eventually. You're still in your sins then, Corinthians. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. What a waste of time. You know what you could be doing tonight, right now? If there's no consequences and there's no reason, we are taking, we're in good company. We're not good company, we're in bad company. We're with the atheist at that point. There's no point, there's no purpose. So, here's the facts. That was the assertion. Christ didn't die for, didn't die or didn't rise from the dead. The facts are this, but now Christ is risen 
from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection from, of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ, he's the first, first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, or to God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. What Paul is trying to get at is, God is not just a bigger, better version of us. And I think we have that misunderstanding. He is not a created being. He's a creator. He's not bound by time and space. He's not bound by sin. He has no fault. He's not finite like we are. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. And when you read the book of Revelation and you see the angels flying around him and the cherubim flying around saying, holy, 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 God, and they do that for an eternity, you get an understanding of the difference between he and us. The holiness there, not just the better version of us, but he's nothing like us. We were made in his image, but far lower. We're lower than the angels in this case. We're still created. What Paul is trying to describe here is in trying to bring them to a place of reverence when they speak of the Father. Jesus is our interface. I mean, he is the, he's the Son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But he's the one that was able to make that connection with everybody as they all understood the Father. We can't go up the mountain. He's too holy. Uh, we can't come close to the burning bush because we're standing on his holy ground. In, in so many ways, we, Moses could not see the Lord. He could only see the afterglow of God as he passed by. There was so much power, so much authority, so much reverence, holiness from God that none of us could see him so... He sent his son, Jesus. God became a man. And that's why we identify with Jesus so much, but make no mistake about it. He was God come in the flesh, perfect, without fault, without blemish, holy. There were glimpses of that. The disciples got just moments. He was so good at just being relatable as Jesus, the man, God come in the flesh, that I think they forgot sometimes who they were in the presence of, but there were moments. You think of the transfiguration on the mountain when they saw Jesus transfigured. What does that mean? Like what he looked like when he came out of the tomb. Nobody was there for that resurrection moment. All they know is the, the, the rags and the, and, the, and, the, and the cloth that he was bound in was just gone, but he vaporized out of it and was now glorified. They saw that before that happened, Matt, or uh, um, Peter, James, and John all saw that up on top of the mountain. And all Peter could do was say, we need, this is good that we're here. You know, we need to make booths. We need to make some tents and live up here. This is amazing. You know, that was one of those glimpses. I think when they saw him enter the room um, after his resurrection, but before his ascension with the pierced hands and stuff, they realized, oh my goodness, it's God come in the flesh. You 
They realized it. There were moments when the sea stood absolutely still at, the, at his verbal command. Like, who is this man? Exactly. You're standing in the one who created all these things. I don't, there were moments like that. And I don't know how to rectify this for us, but maybe we need to spend more time thinking about the Father, too. I know Jesus is the one that brought us to the Father, but to think about the Father. He's not just some old guy with white hair that sits in the background saying, do what Jesus says, you know, kind of thing. No, he's the one we couldn't come close to except by his son. And Paul's trying to make that clear to them, trying to bring that reverence and holiness and understanding that these things aren't negotiable, that this is fact, that this is who he is. You don't get to describe who Jesus is based off your opinion. He reveals himself to us for who he is. And we're simply to believe it and accept it. Verse 29, otherwise, (laughs) what will they do who are baptized for the dead? The dead do not rise at all. There's a weird thing in the middle of Scripture. Baptized for the dead? They were doing that. It was a pagan ritual. But they believed that if one of their dead relatives didn't know Jesus or didn't get to hear about him, they could be baptized for the dead person, and then that person would get saved. They were doing that. Paul's not condoning it. He's not saying it's a good idea. He goes on to say, why then are they baptized for the dead? Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? He's calling them on their obvious hypocrisy. You don't believe there's a resurrection from the dead, and yet you get baptized for the dead people. What are you doing? He's trying to make it clear. I think that's important to call people out on these things. I just believe, where do you get it from? Where do you get that thought? Where do you get that idea? Show it to me in Scripture. Show me in the Bible here where it says that to be true. It's a very serious thing because we're coming into a day and age. We sang a song tonight about Jesus is coming very soon. We're seeing the birth pangs, the Revelation calls it in chapter 1, of Jesus coming again. We can see the world in upheaval. We can see things changing all the time. We've never seen a three years like this ever. It's the weirdest time for human history. Strangest things. I mean, we've had some weird times in human history, but this is one of the weirdest. We get that sense that he's coming soon, and we see the tempo of changing the gospel to change the word of God to diminish its value and source and um, authority. Why? Why now? You have to stand firm. You have to, what he said, hold fast that word which I preached to you. Or you get swallowed up by it. You'll fall into it. Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with the beasts of Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise... Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. He's just taking them to their thoughts. If none of this matters and we all, you know, what are we doing here? We're no better than the cults. We're no better than the unbelievers. They're the ones that have it straight. There's no reason to do all this. Why restrict your life if there's nothing to worry about after you die? Why why even try it? Why did you just 
Do everything you can do in the flesh. Thoroughly enjoy it. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. When I was in college <laughs> for my one year, before I told him to stop taking my money, liberal college, liberal theological college, horrible college, Dana, up in Blair, Nebraska. They're, they're dead now. They're, done. they're gone. They went under. Good. Um, they deserve to go under. One of the things proposed for one of the student activities on this Christian campus was we wanted to have a party called the Hedonistic Weekend. Now, I'm kind of, I was a dumb Marine, you know. I didn't know what hedonistic meant. Never heard that word in my entire life. Who, what hedonistic? What is that? And I liked the guy that proposed it. We were friends. He ran the radio station on the campus, you know. I'm like, yeah, what's hedonistic mean? I looked it up. Oh, oh, debauchery, sin, do everything you want to do in the flesh as much as you can in a weekend. Yeah, no, that's not a good idea, you know. That was his thought. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There was no fear of God. There was no, why are you here? Why did you choose this college? What are you learning? What do you write in your papers? I would love to read your papers that you're writing to these professors and still think that a hedonistic weekend is a good idea. We have churches in town that believe that. I don't understand it. I don't understand what they go to do there. But they believe that. Let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 33 says it all. Do not be deceived, because you have been Corinthians. Don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Paul's saying, what are your sources? Because they're evil. They're not biblical. They're not grounded. Just because they're at the, the, the Bible college doesn't mean they love God. Just because they run the radio station on the Bible college doesn't mean they love God. Well, it has to mean that. No, those are criteria that are never mentioned in Scripture. We get the wrong idea. People that believe the Bible and the, believe in Jesus and believe the gospel, absolutely, Christians all the way. But those who say this is optional and not necessary and, and negotiable, he says... Don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. You've lined yourself and aligned yourself with people that believe these things, and it's affecting you. It's affecting your church. It's affecting your salvation in some cases. Some do not have the knowledge of God. They don't. I speak this to your shame. You should be ashamed of yourselves, Paul says. Oh, there's no more shame. Well, Paul says there is. Well, I didn't make it. We're not going to get through this chapter. Um, the next portion of Scripture that I would love to get to, it talks about the rapture. It talks about what happens when we die. Paul doesn't leave them with the idea that, you know, there is a life after death, but then he describes it. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like to be transfigured. Here's the new body you're going to get. Here's the hope that we have. And on and on, he describes this to us when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, what it's going to look like, and explains it to those who would challenge him on this resurrection. It's nothing more, it's no different than the crops that we produce. We drop a seed into the ground. That's us. 
That's our bodies that we're in right now, but out of it grows this beautiful corn plant or bean plant or whatever it is, and it looks nothing like that ugly wrinkled up little seed you put in the ground. That's the difference between these bodies and our celestial bodies, the bodies we get when we're resurrected. Paul goes on to give hope here. So there is hope. He doesn't just leave the Corinthians with a, you know, a swat on the rear here. He gives them hope. He says, look, you don't have to believe all this garbage that you picked up from unbelievers and from pagan cultures and all these things. This is the truth of what takes place. And he begins to describe that to them. It's our hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I know we read it and we study it and we hold it and we, we cherish it. But Lord, we want to believe it tonight. We want to receive it like Paul says in the beginning. We've received it. We want to stand upon it. We want to know that we're saved by it. We want to hold fast to it. Guard our hearts from those who would try to corrupt what you're trying to put into our hearts. They would try to dig it up or not let it germinate and bear fruit in our lives, God. We pray that your word would be protected in our hearts. It would be changed and transformed. We'd love it and appreciate it and believe it. Because it describes you. No other book in the world that describes you. This is it. So thank you for writing it to us, for giving it to us. The miracle that we hold in our hands, these scriptures, it's amazing that we have it. Help us to truly believe that and hold on to that and not take it lightly. Jesus, thank you for making yourself coming, becoming to us in the form of a man that we could identify and talk to you face to face. No one has seen God face to face. Well, the guys got to see you. What an amazing moment that was in time. Although we just pray that you keep us. We live in very uncertain times, God. We live in a time where doctrine is just open. Hermeneutics are not discussed or even understood. We just pick and choose when this is a meal that needs to be eaten in its entirety. God. I pray that you would. I pray that as we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the scriptures, God, that we'd receive it all, be nourished by it completely, changed and transformed and conformed into your image, Jesus. That's our hope. I pray that you bless these folks as they go. I hope they'd hold fast to this and they'd remember this and even use it this week as a Minister to other people who have maybe some doctrine that needs to be adjusted. We thank you for our kids. We thank you for the teachers that taught them tonight. We pray that you bless those teachers who took the time to study and to prepare a little message for each one of those congregations. And I pray they'd receive it in their little hearts and, and they'd be blessed by it, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please come up if you need prayer before you go. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week. We'll see you Sunday.